Hi everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. If you don't know me, if this is your first time listening in, hi, I'm Dr. Heather Hirsch. I'm the clinical program director at the menopause and midlife clinic at the Brigham and women's hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, where I live and work. This podcast is coming to you directly from my kitchen table where we may or may not hear my dog barking randomly throughout this podcast. I try to kind of cut her out, but sometimes she sneaks a bark in here or there. Last week's episode was all on doing it natural. We talked about natural menopause and the idea or the premise for that show was to go over what are some of the things, you know, if you're not treating um, with either hormonal medications or non-hormonal medications, if you're going through it naturally, whether you have symptoms or whether you don't, what are some of the things that you need to know about menopause that you maybe can't feel that are physiologically going on that you also want to have an understanding of so that you have your best midlife and your best 50s, 60s, 70s, and way beyond. In today's episode, I want to talk about non-hormonal treatments for your menopause and midlife symptoms. Now, if you guys have been listening to my podcast for a long time, you know I have several other episodes on the safety and efficacy of hormone therapy, and I talk a lot about the use of hormonal therapy, which is postmenopausal estrogen, if progesterone if you have an intact uterus and or testosterone. So there's plenty of episodes on those, but today I want to talk about non-hormonal options. So that's what we're talking about today. I'm really excited to get into some of this and some of the most recent uh, updates on this. So stick around, grab your walking shoes, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for tuning in. I say this like almost every week, but your support and your words of encouragement or your stars or your reviews on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast mean the world to me because really it's not just because then I feel great, but it's because it allows the algorithm to move this podcast up into the suggested podcasts for other women who may not otherwise find it. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart for all of your support. If you guys also don't know, you can find me and follow me on Instagram. I'm at hormone.health.doc and I'm on Twitter at Heather Hirsch MD. And if you guys also want to check out my website, it's heatherhirschmd.com. And I have so many resources there, including my ebook on how to talk to your doctor about menopause and my course, The Complete Guide to Menopause. So I have tons and tons of resources and other things for you guys. Today, we're taking a break from the just exhaustive 24-hour news cycle. And I pray for all of you listeners that this is just a half an hour of, you know, relief from being inundated by the news because it's been quite heavy. We're talking about non-hormonal options for the treatment of symptoms at menopause. So the question is, why, why would you use non-hormonal options? Well, there's sort of two categories. The first is you can't use estrogen products. So if you have a known contraindication to estrogen products, you know, you, unfortunately you most likely can't use them. And the big contraindications are going to be any type of a breast cancer, um, definitely active breast cancer. And in 99% of cases, any history of breast cancer, other major contraindications to estrogen therapy is going to be a history of a unprovoked blood clot. 
Now, unprovoked means simply that it was unprovoked, meaning you were just sitting around watching TV and you noticed a red hot swollen tender leg and you were told you had a blood clot and you had to be on blood thinners. Common names for that are Coumadin or Warfarin or Xarelto and usually with an aspirin. That's what a real blood clot is. A lot of people wonder about superficial blood clots and that is actually not in the same category. A superficial blood clot is sort of one on the outside of your legs, sometimes even looks like varicose veins. Those are not the same thing as a DVT, which is a deep venous thrombosis. And of course, a pulmonary embolism, which is a lung clot. And that's why we worry about those DVTs, the ones that are in your legs, because if a piece of that clot breaks off and travels to your lungs, that can cause some serious, serious harm. And so if you have a history of an unprovoked, you know, um, pulmonary embolism, or even a provoked pulmonary embolism, you, you know, it certainly could be a contraindications to estrogen therapy. And the reason is that estrogen does increase our risk for blood clots a little bit. Now, remember when we're premenopausal, we make tons of estrogen. So other things that increase our risk for blood clots substantially include pregnancy. In fact, that's the biggest risk for a blood clot. If you are ever pregnant, um, your estrogen goes up into the thousands. Birth control pills also contain estrogen and they increase your risk for blood clot. The reason they're so acceptable is because actually the risk of an unplanned pregnancy or the risk of an adverse event from pregnancy even outweighs that of using birth control. Um, so birth control also has a slightly increased risk for a blood clot. Now, in contrary, is a provoked blood clot. So a provoked blood clot, a great example of this is a car accident. So if you were in a massive car accident where you underwent significant trauma and your body had a clot, we consider that provoked. And there may have been significantly other stress factors and inflammatory markers at play that played a role in that than just simply just having estrogen. Um, another provoked type of blood clot is one after a major surgery. And so we consider those uh, provoked blood clots. And there are many cases where I still can use estrogen safely, especially in a low transdermal dose for a patient who may have had a provoked blood clot. But, you know, again, this is, um, if you see me as a patient, this is not direct medical advice. Also, then there's women who don't want to take an estrogen therapy. Uh, they just decided they don't want to accept those risks. They've just decided for whatever personal reason that they don't want to do that. And that is okay too. There is no right or wrong way to do menopause. You know, hormone therapy is not right or wrong. It's just an option. And while there are many benefits, and I don't want my patients to confuse that with myths about hormone therapy or fear factors of of hormone therapy. Once they've waded through that and they still decide they don't want to use estrogen therapy, that's certainly a patient's autonomous choice. So either you can't take it, you don't want to take it, or some people just don't have the option. Maybe their doctors just don't want to prescribe it or simply don't have the knowledge. And certainly I've done a lot of shows talking about, you know, seeking out um, a specialist using the NAMS website. NAMS stands for the North American Menopause Society, and you can find that going to menopause.org. But if you just don't have the option, I want to walk you through what are the non-hormonal options, meaning not estrogen, progesterone, or testosterone that you can use for your menopausal symptoms. Whew. I need to take a breath. All right, let's get into it. Okay. The sad, sad fact is that there is one, one FDA approved medication for vasomotor symptoms. I'm going to also sort of back up and say that the majority of the next group I'm going to talk about are really for 
vasomotor symptoms. So that's actually what they're going to help with the most. So if you're having trouble with sleep or weight, we're going to talk about that as well. If you're having trouble with memory or fatigue or brain fog, um, hair loss, hair thinning, you know, these medications that we're going to talk about are really only going to help improve hot flashes. Now they may improve sleep by reducing nighttime hot flashes, but that's going to be their main uh, benefit. So they're not going to have the same type of vaginal health or or heart health or bone health that some of the hormonal uh, medications will have. So the one and the the first one that we're going to talk about that's FDA approved for the treatment of vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes at menopause is called Brisdel. Brisdel is its brand name. Its generic name is paroxetine. Now, paroxetine is a medication that is in the SSRI class or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class. This means it leaves serotonin in your brain and serotonin makes us happy. And so this medication is also classified as an antidepressant or, or in the antidepressant class. But we know that the antidepressant class of medications, when used at very low doses, can help blunt vasomotor symptoms, not at high doses. So actually very commonly, I I will have patients come see me who are, let's say they're, we're talking about paroxetine, they're on 40 milligrams of paroxetine and paroxetine ranges from uh, 10 to 40, and they may still be having hot flashes. One idea we'll talk about is actually reducing the dose if if their mood could tolerate that, but certainly actually at higher doses that are used uh, that are better for things like anxiety or depression are not going to help the vasomotor symptoms as much as the uber- ultra low dose as well. So Brisdell's proxetine, uh, 7.5 milligrams. And again, FDA approved to treat hot flashes. It's a once a day oral medication, and it's been proven to be very efficacious without having significant side effects. And side effects from the SSRI class often include um, lowering libido or difficulty climaxing and weight gain, although not extreme amounts of weight. And those are some of the two more common questions I'll get about using SSRIs in general. Brisdell 7.5 milligrams is really expensive and it's hard to get. And I can't tell you how many times I have banged my head against the wall trying to get Brisdell for a patient who has a history of breast cancer or who, you know, really doesn't want to use, um, estradiol, even though it's the one FDA approved medication, it is so hard to get covered by people's insurance. Don't ask me why. Actually, I could probably go on a rant about that in a whole other episode, but for today's episode, let's just kind of move on from that point because it is so costly. I often end up prescribing paroxetine 10 milligrams. And again, I'm just going to remind you that the Brisdell, which is paroxetine 7.5 milligrams is very close to paroxetine 10 milligrams. So I do have my patients often take the Paxil 10 milligrams. Now, if you are on a medication called tamoxifen, which is a anti-breast cancer medication, you can not use an SSRI with tamoxifen because both the SSRI and the tamoxifen are metabolized in your liver and therefore it can decrease the overall efficacy of your tamoxifen. So just a side note for anyone who does have uh, breast cancer or history of breast cancer and is taking tamoxifen, unfortunately you can't use this medication. There are others though, and we'll talk about those. Now, 
Paroxetine is not the only SSRI that works. In fact, most of the other SSRIs do work. And generic names for those include fluoxetine and citalopram and um, escitalopram. Those are all other medications that you can try, but you want to definitely use the lowest effective dose because the same principle applies. These medications do help blunt hot flashes when used at ultra low doses. There is another classification of medications in this in this class, and it's sort of sister class, which is an SNRI, which is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So it kind of helps keep two um, uh, of those sort of happy hormones in our brain, serotonin and norepinephrine. Those two main medications are actually really commonly prescribed, and that includes venlafaxine, which is the generic name, and the brand name is Effexor. And the other one, which is is Pristique, and that is its uh, brand name. These are both SNRIs, and they can work fairly well in blunting hot flashes. Again, you want to stick with the same principle of the lowest effective dose of that SNRI. Now, SSRIs and SNRIs, again, sometimes do have a side effects or risk profile that's just important to talk about, just like using a hormonal option. It doesn't mean that they're completely clear of side effects. The most common ones do tend to be a reduction in sexual functioning, often with climax or sometimes with desire and libido. It is sometimes really problematic for women at midlife because they're already facing that issue and they already want help in that area. So it is something to consider as well as weight gain. Now, weight gain certainly can be really dependent um, with the SSRI, with what other medications people are on. I think weight gain is really a multifactorial component, but certainly if that's an issue and you're going to start one of these medications, I don't think it's a reason not to start, but I would just simply watch closely where your weight's going on the scale or how your clothes are fitting. All right, guys, let's go to the next medication, which is out of the SSRI SNRI class. And this is called gabapentin. Gabapentin is actually a neuroleptic medication and it's in a completely different class. Gabapentin also has a lot of nerve benefits, kind of tends to ease the nerves. And so it's often used as well for patients with say spinal stenosis or herniated discs where they have neuropathy, which means nerve pain, sort of that radiating pain. You can kind of think of sciatica as being radiating pain if you ever experienced that. And gabapentin in a way kind of helps to just numb the nerve endings so that you don't have just such that sensation of pain all the time. At low doses, we found that gabapentin can help blunt hot flashes. Now, gabapentin is a medication that I often prescribe to be taken at night. In fact, actually, I do this with my SSRIs and SNRIs as well, because sometimes they tend to induce a little bit of sleepiness. So the biggest risk factor, the biggest side effect that I tend to see from gabapentin is somnolence or sleepiness or trouble um, getting up the next day. So that's certainly something that you want to watch out for. Now you can combat this by making sure you're using the lowest dose of gabapentin and that same principle applies with the SSRIs. The lowest dose tends to work the best. So gabapentin actually starts in its lowest form at 100 milligrams or 300 milligrams. And that's just because 100 is considered ultra, ultra low. 300 milligrams is usually the place where I'll start if my patients feel okay tolerating that. And to give you a reference range, gabapentin can go 
all the way up to 2,700 milligrams. So some people take it 900 milligrams three times a day, um, not very commonly. This is for patients with really severe neuropathy. Maybe they've um, had a, a car accident. Maybe they're, um, you know, a paraplegic, you know. So certainly these are not doses that we use for hot flashes at any means. The max efficacy has found to be at about 600 milligrams. Um and really, once we kind of go past 600 milligrams, even up to the 900 milligrams, we really don't see much change in efficacy and relief from hot flashes. So because it makes my patients oftentimes a little sleepy, I prescribe gabapentin often at bedtime. Now, I try to sort of match up my patients' other maybe comorbidities or other medical concerns or issues with um, their non-hormonal medication for hot flashes. So for example, if they do have some spinal stenosis or um, some type of neuropathy, whether it's tingling in the legs or uh, you know down, radiating down into the shoulder, into the arm, sometimes gabapentin matches up nicely with their other needs, and that's sometimes a good reason to start gabapentin. If this medication makes you too sleepy, I, I certainly wouldn't continue it because these medications are really only going to work when you are using them. So if you're going to stop them, the hot flashes are going to return. All right, moving on to the next medication is called oxybutynin. Oxybutynin is actually a medication for overactive bladder, but also has been found to reduce the um, severity of vasomotor symptoms. Now, oxybutynin is really one that I will reserve for patients who have hot flashes and overactive bladder because it does have some serious side effects. Oxybutynin is an anticholinergic medication, and so it can cause some side effects such as dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, kind of tends to slow the system in general. So that's sort of how it kind of stops that overactivity of your bladder. But again, I really only reserve this medication to be used for patients who are using non-hormonal medications and have overactive bladder because for the majority of people who don't have that other issue, they do tend to stop this medication because the side effects tend to almost be you know, worse than the benefits of reducing the vasomotor symptoms to begin with. The last one we have in this non-hormonal list is called clonidine. And clonidine is actually an antihypertensive medication, meaning it can lower blood pressure. It's certainly an older and blood pressure medication. In fact, during residency training, we didn't even use it very much. And that was back in the um, early you know, 2010 to 2014. Certainly we've got great newer, more targeted medications that have come out since then and are, and are recommended as first line. But it does have a nice side effect of also reducing hot flash frequency and severity. And so if I do have a patient who has a little bit of high blood pressure and can tolerate the, uh, the little bit of reduction in blood pressure, then sometimes clonidine is a great option. I actually have used this more times than you might imagine, and certainly for the right patient, it can actually work really well. So again, certainly with all these non-hormonal options, if we're going back and reviewing, you've got the SSRIs, the SNRIs, uh, a medication called gabapentin, oxybutynin, and clonidine. If we can match up any other symptoms um, with the other things that these medications tend to treat or help with, that is the best way to do that. Now, a lot of people ask me, how long should you try this medication for? And I say within six to eight weeks, you should certainly know if this medication is efficacious in reducing your hot flashes. If it is not, please do not continue to take it unless it's having some other benefit that you didn't know that you needed, but please do not keep taking this medication. I will often see people come to my office 
who've been put on, let's say, uh, venlafaxine, they're taking it twice a day, maybe they're having some sexual side effects, they were started it to help their hot flashes, they don't really think it's working, but they've sort of been on it for a few months. And really, I really urge you to sort of take back, you know, that into your own hands. If it hasn't worked over the last six to eight weeks, it's not going to magically work better. Uh, It's not going to magically work one day. So certainly, if you've given it that trial period, it's not having the desired outcome, go ahead and feel free to stop your medication with a conversation with your doctor. Some of these should be tapered off. And certainly I really want to urge you, you know, always keep your doctor informed about what you're doing. Otherwise, because um, many of us have so many patients, so we, we don't know why we don't know what you're doing at home. And so if you call with a question and you've stopped a medication, uh, we, we otherwise maybe wouldn't know that. So always inform your doctor about what you want to do, or certainly have that conversation with your doctor beforehand. You know, how long should I take this before we decide if it's, uh, if it's worth it? or not. So I think six to eight weeks will give you plenty of information to know. Now, I also kind of want to put in one more um, plug for actually progesterone. Now, progesterone is a hormonal medication. We're supposed to be talking about non-hormonal medications in this episode, but progesterone doesn't carry the same risks that estrogen does in terms of its risk of clotting. In fact, progesterone is really particularly safe, and there are definitely studies that show that progesterone does reduce the risk of hot flashes, and that's certainly very interesting. It's certainly also worth a try if you can't take estrogen. If you have a contraindication such as, um, a blood clot, you know, maybe not so much a a history of cancer because breast cancers can be estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive. Or if you don't want to take estrogen for any type of reason, I do sort of also want to put out that there are some instances where progesterone alone may be helpful in reducing hot flashes, but not carrying the same types of risks that estrogen does. And progesterone comes in 100 or 200 milligrams of micronized natural progesterone, which is my preferred way to use it. That is a commercially available progesterone that you can get at CVS, Walgreens, etc. It does not need to be compounded. And certainly, again, if, if you tried that for six to eight weeks, you should be able to see if that would reduce your hot flash severity or frequency. So there's a couple of new medications in the pipeline that I wanted to let you know about. And the North American Menopause Society, which I'm a part of and such a fan of, it's the governing body on all things evidence-based on menopause here in the United States where I live. We just had the annual meeting. And of course, it's not you know in person, of course. It's on a Zoom. It's all virtual. And I've been learning a ton. And there are two new medications in the pipeline that I'm really excited about. They've been in development for some time. And I I'm just in awe of the researchers and all of the great research that has come out because, you know, if we can get funding for menopause research and menopause research is being done, this is a win for all of us. Um, And I'm just honored to be part of a community where that is seen as something that is of value and that is of priority and and of importance. The first a new classification of medications is in the KNDY receptor blocker, or we call it CANDY. And these are receptors that we have found, I would say within the last like 10 to 20 years of having a role in hot flashes. These receptors tend to get bigger or they hypertrophy at menopause. And so we wonder if we block these um, by an antagonist, it's essentially a protein that blocks uh, things that you don't want firing or signaling. 
uh, the interest is to see if that can help reduce hot flashes. So there is a new medication currently being studied. Uh, it's NT814. If you care to know a fun fact for, I don't know, Zoom parties. Uh, I was going to say cocktail parties, but Zoom parties. Um, and it's shown great promise in reducing hot flash duration and frequency and also improving other markers in terms of quality of life, um, such as sleep as well as mood. I think some mood data. Don't quote me on that one as I'm saying it out loud, but certainly I, I know uh, hot flashes and sleep. It's a non-hormonal once-a-day medication and they're going into larger phase three studies. So this is something that is being um, studied and you know, definitely down the pipeline. The other is another non-hormonal medication, and this is essentially a medication that decreases our core body temperature. Aha, just what we need when we're having hot flashes. It's something that could help decrease our core body temperature. Uh, again, another uh, oral medication. It's called TRPM8, I believe, another fun fact. But this is also being studied so that, you know, there's definitely interest in, uh, you know, non-hormonal uh, medications in terms of their safety and their efficacy in reducing hot flashes, which tend to be you know, a significant portion of women's symptoms in midlife and menopause, but, but certainly not the only ones. So there are definitely some things coming down the pipeline, I'm excited to say. And as more data comes out, I will always be here updating you. Now, we've talked a lot about hot flashes and reducing those, but what about sleep? Well, I did an entire podcast on why can't I sleep? And that's a really, really great one. If you're having trouble sleeping, I urge you to like, as soon as this podcast is over in another couple of minutes, go directly and listen to that one. It's really, really good because, you know, if sleeping is a problem, you certainly need to start with your sleep hygiene. You certainly need to figure out, is it trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? You need to get some kind of baseline for how many hours a night you are sleeping. There is definitely data to show that hormone therapy can help, especially um, in reducing hot flashes at night and nighttime awakenings. But again, this is a podcast on not using estrogen options. So there are some over-the-counter supplements and vitamins that I I have my patients start with. The first is magnesium 250 to 500 milligrams. You can get magnesium as magnesium citrate or magnesium oxide. They both tend to work really well and they help just make us feel a little sleepy and sort of drift off to sleep at bedtime. And melatonin is another one that you can certainly try. You could actually take melatonin and magnesium together. You'd absolutely be just fine. Um, if those things don't work and you've d- listened to the other podcast, you've tried all the um, uh, you know sleep hygiene tips, you've tried the vitamins and supplements, there are some non-hormonal options that we can use. I always recommend the use of non-addictive medications. And those addictive medications are things like benzodiazepines or um, the brand names are you know, um, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Clonidine. These medications work really, really well. And that's why they become addictive. They're really nice band-aids to help yourself fall asleep. The more and more you use them though, the more and more you'll need them. So I want you to try and use things that are more as needed. Um, that's certainly going to be the goal. If you are on some of those medications, no judgment. I've certainly seen it. And there are times when it's necessary. Um, weaning down is always an option can definitely help. So sleeping agents that I tend to recommend are in the non-benzodiazepine or non-ambient class. And the first one that I recommend is amitriptyline. This is an SNRI. We talked a lot about those earlier. Really, really low doses of this just to see if it helps with sleep. 
trazodone, 50 or 100 milligrams, or mirtazapine. Uh, again, really low doses. See if these, you know, when taken at night, help you sleep. If not, you know, after a few weeks, certainly don't continue to take them. These are in the SSRI class. It's not that we think that you're secretly depressed and, you know, we're trying these. Um, it, it's just that at low doses, they can increase that serotonin in your brain. And, and sometimes that can kind of help you uh, stop the worrying or stop the cycle of bad sleep and, and kind of drift off to sleep a little bit better. But certainly the sleeping patterns that you have at bedtime are so, 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 so important. So again, I cannot recommend enough checking out that podcast. And I also have it in YouTube form and my YouTube channel is health by Heather Hirsch. And what about weight? Well, you know, certainly there are medications for weight. The, the issue with most of the medications that are for weight are that they're going to work primarily while you're using them. And so I really only recommend these for patients who have an excellent diet um, and a pretty good exercise regimen before they start. Because if not, if you have a poor diet or poor lifestyle habit, after you use this medication, you're going to simply gain that way back. It's, it's a no brainer. So you really want to have an excellent regimen, an excellent healthy regimen before you take a weight loss medication. Certainly Wellbutrin or Bupropion is its generic name is something that's actually fairly safe that I often start with. It, it can help with a small amount of weight somewhere in the ballpark of usually five pounds, maybe 10 pounds if you're lucky, but it also is great for mood and energy and fatigue. And so sometimes uh, Bupropion, uh, also known as Wellbutrin, is a great option for women in midlife. And then other medications for weight are really um, very expensive. They're expensive, um, they're uh, controlled, and they have to be written by a physician. Um, certainly, if you're overweight or you're obese, there are risks to being overweight or obese. And so, uh, you know, certainly it's not that these medications are just completely black boxed, um, but, you know, they're good things to know that are out there as a regimen and or as option as well. And those include um, the brand names are called Contrave or Qsimia. Phentermine is something I've actually never prescribed alone. Um, and certainly I actually think that Contrave or Qsimia are a little bit better. Qsimia actually has the, the highest efficacy. But again, I cannot stress enough that these are things that need to be taken under a physician's guidance and you need to have an excellent um, you know, regimen and healthy lifestyle before you start these medications so that you can maintain that weight loss. Well, all right, guys, thank you so much for listening in for 30 whole minutes while I talked through the most uh, commonly used and efficacious non-hormonal medications for midlife and menopause, starting off with the SSRIs and their uh, efficacy for hot flashes. We touched on gabapentin, oxybutyn, clonidine, and then I threw in progesterone, which is considered a hormonal option, but certainly doesn't carry the same risks that estrogen does. We talked about the brand new two new non-hormonal medications being studied and sleep and weight. If you guys have any questions or you want to know more, please follow me on Instagram. I'm at hormone.health.doc. And also I have a YouTube channel. If I didn't mention that in the opening, it's health by Heather Hirsch. And you can actually see me talk and wave my hands around. Uh, it's really fun. Please feel free to go there and subscribe. And also I just thank you guys so much for your support. I love hearing any ideas you have for new episodes, any comments, questions, and concerns and feedback you guys have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to Health by Heather Hirsch. And you guys, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Bye.